And the way to be loyal here is to honor the truth. Just get in there, answer the questions, speak to what you know, and it will come out and we'll deal with that as we need to. But honor the truth. And in that way, we'll be able to learn. And in that way, we'll be able to, you know, develop and move on from this situation. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Our guest today is Peter Scott. Peter served in the Royal Australian Navy for over three decades and rose to be the professional head of the Navy's elite submarine arm. He served among the most dedicated crews, the most highly specialised capability in any Navy, in the most complex and demanding environment on earth, the undersea battle space. Through at-sea fires, floods and explosions, Peter served in 10 submarines and 20 different commander leadership appointments over his 34-year career. A veteran of multiple special operations with the submarine arm, he also saw war service in Iraq, the Persian Gulf and Afghanistan. He's recently authored a memoir published by Fremantle Press on his Navy and submarine service, Running Deep and Australian Submarine Life, and the book launches on the 4th of April. We talked about the book, Lessons of Leadership and Life After Full-Time Service. What I loved was Peter's real and honest conversations around the success and also the challenges of leadership. Let's jump right in. Well, Peter Scott, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show, mate. Martin, uh, great to be here. Thanks very much for that invitation. Yeah. Well, look, the question I always ask my guests is, how did you end up joining the service, in your case, the Royal Australian Navy? Yeah, thanks, Martin. Just sort of tracking back, I do recall, and I know a little bit similar to yourself, I had some aspirations to join the, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force as a youngster. There were a couple of mates... In fifth and sixth grade, we effectively had a little blood pact that we'd all do what we needed to do to get through school and go off and join the Air Force and, and fly jets. And I, I recall on a number of occasions, family holidays where we would, we would drive north and find ourselves heading past Williamtown Air Base. And I'd be desperate for dad to stop at, at the end of the runway there. And I'd, I could sit there for hours watching these Mirage jets coming in and, and roaring off. My brother and sisters got tired of it pretty quickly, but I was just sort of caught up in the majesty of it. Now, I'd say my, my direction or my decision matured a little over the years. One of the really simple things that shifted it was a mate of mine, we ended up joining the Navy together. He organised a visit down to the Royal Australian Naval College while we were still in school. And he just did that through the careers counsellor. And he said, Scotty, I'm going down to the Naval College. Do you want to come? And I said, yep, that'll get me out of school for a day. So off we went. And I think when I got to the college and was able to walk the grounds, speak to some of the officers, both training and the midshipmen and some of the sailors, it just cemented this vision of, yep, you know, this is who I might become. I could see myself there. You know, there were warships in the bay at the time and it was really a probably a pretty superficial glimpse of what the Navy might be, but it was enough to 
fire me up and push me along to move through school and, and join the Naval College when I, when I left. Yeah. So who were your leadership heroes, influences growing up? Martin, I had, I think, some very strong male role models. So my hero growing up was actually probably my grandfather. He was absolutely the patriarch of the family. He was a uh, World War I veteran, in fact, served on the Western Front, copped a German machine gun bullet to the head, but survived that, came home and, and raised a, a very strong and loving family. He and Grandma had three sons, so one uncle served in the Air Force during World War II up in Papua New Guinea. The other became a, a priest and was in the priesthood his whole life, and my dad was a, a public servant through his whole working career. So I think if I look at all three of them and my grandfather together, they're all service-oriented men. They're all family and community-oriented men. And I think just growing up in their company meant that it really wasn't a stretch for me at all to join one of the services and go off uh, into the Navy. And clearly there was a bit of, you know, a desire to get out there, explore the world and find some adventure as well. Mm. So you... Naval career had you seeking out to become a submariner, which is a quite a unique career path in the Navy. It's a, it requires a certain skill set. What was the catalyst for that? Yeah, so I certainly did not join the Navy to become a submariner, and I'd probably been in for half a dozen years before I, I did put up my hand. But you'll recall, Martin, around the early to mid-'80s, which was when I joined you know, that was the time of the Falklands War in 82 or thereabouts. I had images of HMS Conqueror sinking the Argentinian flagship Belgrano. And, you know, there really wasn't much to compete with that for an image of decisive naval power. And with half a dozen years under my belt, I'd come to realise that, you know, the Navy was going to demand some hard work. It was also going to demand some sacrifice, but not just sacrifice for myself, but also for those around me. And I'd, I'd met my wife-to-be by that time, and I think I decided that if I was going to stay in the Navy, I would render the most effective service that I possibly could. And my logic was, well, you know, there's nothing more potent in the Navy than, than our submarines. So let's head off there and see how we go. Mm. The submarine service is often referred to the, the silent service because you sail from port and then you submerge and yep. then you come back sometime later and we don't know what you do. Yeah. What's that like being away for that kind of period of time and what are those leadership challenges like in that environment? Hmm. So I think, first of all, we prepare ourselves very deliberately and very well for those challenges. It is challenging. You know, the submarines, because of the way they operate, they need to be wholly self-reliant. You know, we do deploy very often not in company with other warships or, you know, either of our own Navy or of, or of allied navies. And we're often deployed a long way from home and a long way from support. So, you know, we make sure that we've got, we've got everything we need as we go. We make sure that we're 
mentally and psychologically prepared to go away, achieve our mission and do so pretty independently and just deal with whatever it is that comes up on the day. So it does breed, I think, a very strong sense of independence and it certainly demands self-reliance. It calls for, on occasion, very judicious leadership and decision-making and it absolutely demands, you know, sustained, effective teamwork as you head out there for those those weeks and those months. Yeah, so challenging, but the work and the people uh, and the challenges themselves make it all worthwhile, yeah. Yeah, and there is lots, many of what you do and have done you can't talk about, but what are some of those sort of, I guess, moments of, leadership while you were serving that you look back on and go, that was the moment where I understood what leadership was about? Sure. So I'd probably point to (laughs) one of my more difficult days on boats, which was when I drove my submarine into the continental shelf at depth and at speed. Pretty clumsy in one sense. (laughs) But I, I bring it up because a couple of years later, I was discussing it with one of the people who was on board and he described that as both my worst and my best day in command. You know, worst, obviously, because we'd, we'd clearly messed up. We had been, we were at the very back end of a operational workup. So probably three months of work, both alongside and at sea, getting the submarine and the people prepared to go off and do a very big deployment, a six-month deployment away from Australia. And we're on the final night of the final assessment of that workup. We'd been working against a, a task group of warships. We'd just, you know, simulated attacking them, had gone deep to evade, and we were closing the coast overnight for a, a final event, which was an inshore operation off Rottnest Island. In fact, you'd know it, Martin, the following morning. And we just messed up the navigation and we stoofed in. So very difficult at the time to deal with that, although the ship's company did a superb job of responding once they understood where they were at and bringing the submarine to the surface. And obviously we went back alongside. The next couple of weeks were pretty difficult because that, that's when you know the Board of Inquiry was conducted. And I recall a conversation with my ship's, not not so much the ship's company, but the, the wardroom, the officers ahead of that board of inquiry. Clearly, my career was on the line. As I stepped off the, the boat to go into that board of inquiry, I didn't know if I'd be coming back to the boat. I knew that, you know, we were a pretty tight unit. We'd been working together for a long time. I knew that I had the respect and the loyalty of my officers. And my concern was that there might be a, an inclination or a temptation for them to offer me some sort of protection. And I know that, you know, I was inclined to protect them as well. But what I said to them on the day was, listen, the way to be loyal here is to honour the truth. Just get in there, answer the questions, speak to what you know, and it will come out and we'll deal with that as we need to. But honour the truth and in that way, we'll be able to learn and in that way, we'll be able to, you know, develop and move on from this situation. And it actually ended up being a very strong, the whole event 
a very strong unifying occasion for the ship's company. And it also was a very blunt warning. <laughs> hey, guys, you're going out there, you're going to be on your own. You know, you mess it up like this again, you're not going to get away with it. And, you know, we subsequently went off and, and had a, an extremely successful deployment. So that, that might be yeah. one of those days, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. It's not always easy to share, but share those days where you absolutely know you're stuffed yep. up. Yep. <laughs> but I, I appreciate the fact that this is about, that actually the real lesson in that is about integrity to speak the truth. Right. And and know that that actually is the best outcome because people remember that. People were living with the facts and being responsible and taking accountability for what action you took, mm. but also for others to just speak the truth. Far better place to be than, than sort of trying to, you know, build a story around it that kind of, as you say, protect you. Right, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. It's a good, mm. it's a good yeah. word, that, that integrity piece, I think, as you point that out, that, that's what it was about. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Your submarine career, you had uh, command of a number of submarines and uh, then went on to sort of higher responsibilities uh, in the submarine world, yep. including Director General of Submarines. You know, submarines are an important capability. We might digress because it's actually a bit popular at the moment in terms of talking about <laughs> this. Is, uh, what yeah. can you share in terms of why submarines are important? And Yeah. So, look, I think they're a vital capability for our defence force. A couple of key characteristics uh, point to that. You know, they are an exceptionally capable and potent offensive weapon system. It, you know, submarines are designed and built to sink ships and other submarines. That's what they're about. And the way they achieve that, of course, is often through a very deliberate passive posture in the way that they operate at sea. So stealth is absolutely the greatest tactical advantage that any submarine can have and, and maintaining and preserving stealth shapes the way that we, the way we think, the way we train, the way we operate. And operated well, a submarine can be exceptionally difficult to detect, exceptionally difficult to counter. So when we put submarines to sea, they cause regional, naval and political leaders to stop and think. And the longer they can be at sea, you know, in strategically important waters with their precise location unknown, with their precise activity or mission unknown, the more that question mark, mark builds. So it's, it's the combination of that ability to create question marks in the minds of others with the ability to deliver really potent firepower that means, you know, they are really our, our principal strategic deterrent capability and they're also one of our most capable offensive capabilities. So that's where the real value of our submarines lies. It's in that ability to shape and influence the thinking of those who might, you know, act against us. So be they diesel electric submarines with, you know, certain capabilities and limitations or nuclear submarines with other capabilities and limitations, I think they're for a very long time going to present as that principal strategic deterrent for us. Yeah. 
He also had operational war service in Iraq, the Persian Gulf and Afghanistan. What was that nature of that service? Yeah, that was that was pretty different. <laughs> so my role was I was the, the chief of staff in headquarters of Joint Task Force 633. So that was the Australian task force, which at that time was operating 10 different task groups across Iraq, the Persian Gulf and Afghanistan. So I was I was second in command and and you know we we were exercising national command over all those task groups were, which were obviously deployed variously under other operational commands. So really simply I'd say my role there was to run the headquarters so that the the commander the one star could command those forces. That was a particular experience it, it was um, full of paradox. Mm-hmm. Very violent time that I was over there, the US combat or the combat deaths were exceeding those of the 2003 invasion, but also professionally a uh, very satisfying period, you know, working with, I think we had about 2,000 ADF sailors, soldiers and air men and women in theatre at that time, all highly specialised, all highly professional and all doing a, a tremendous job in a very difficult circumstance. Yeah. One of those things about that environment, which is complex, which is also the nature of being a submarine captain, but also you talked about the paradox, and that's often what leaders are confronted with is paradox. Mm. What are your thoughts about how leaders best respond to paradox or complexity? What have you found useful in your environment or and learning? Yeah. So... I think something I learnt there, because it was so extreme, was that the best way for me to deal with it was to to lean into it. So lean into the complexity, lean into the chaos, allow yourself to be immersed in it, because there was no escaping it. You couldn't hide from it, and it was shaping everything that we were doing or, or trying to do. I know that, you know, at different times in my service, I've been... I've been quite frightened and afraid that I was going to die. When I was in Iraq, it was a little bit different. I think I accepted that I was in a war zone. There was a lot of violence around. I wasn't entirely in control of where that violence might land and I might, I might not survive. So probably my greatest fear through that time was not a fear of death, but it was a fear of being overwhelmed. So a fear of being overwhelmed physically or, you know, cognitively or even spiritually, just having morale busted. And I decided pretty quickly that the way I had to deal with that was, as I said earlier, to lean into the complexity, become immersed in it, not fight it, but move within it Mm. and use it, you know, to advantage where and when I could. And that meant accepting a level of, you know, permanent discomfort and unease, but allowing myself to, you know, live in that state and just accepting that that was what I had to do in order to do my job well and, you know, support the headquarters and support the men and women out in the task groups. That was what I needed to do. So that was an approach there, Martin. Yeah. I like that concept of leaning in. And when we deal with complexity, there are obviously many unknowns. 
And for some, under stress or under extreme stress, the, the natural tendency might be to withdraw. Mm. But as leaders, we actually need to lean in, don't we? And, uh, um, you know, because people are looking to us to lead in that moment. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. They're, they watch pretty closely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're always watching, aren't they? <laughs> mm, mm, mm. They're always watching. You had a stellar career and, and it came to the point to transition from service to, to corporate. What was that like? What was the catalyst for that? What was it like? It was a pretty exciting and rewarding time, and I can talk to that. What was the catalyst? I'm not sure that there was a catalyst. I am certain that it was the right time for me to move on for probably a bunch of different reasons. One of those, I think, was that, you know, I was retiring as Director General Submarines, as you mentioned, but also as the Head of Submarine Profession. And I think we did some great work during my time there. And I was entirely satisfied to step out of full-time Navy from that role. So just that, that sense of autonomy, being in, in charge of my own decision there, really helped with the, the shift out. I think another thing that helped me there, Martin, was the mindset that I chose to adopt. It can be really easy to catastrophize a decision or a move like stepping out of the services after 10 or 20 or 30 years. What I telling myself though was that, hey, yes, this is a big step, but you are a master of transition. So for the previous three decades, Navy had given me an opportunity to transition at least every two years. They would send me to a new location in a new submarine or ship with a new commanding officer, a new team to lead, a new role. And, you know, we'd go off, we'd do that, we'd find the ways to work through and, you know, master that piece and master that role and and succeed in each of those endeavours. So when you take that sort of an attitude, then a shift out of defence onto something of your own choosing is just one more repetition, you know, and it might be a move in location, it might be a move in, mm. in role. And, yeah, you've got to adapt to it. You've got to be open and looking to understand your new circumstances, but it's not something that, that I needed to be afraid of. So, so again, I lent into that. Mm. I think I had enough clarity, mm. but just enough clarity on where I was going and, and what I was trying to achieve. I was pretty clear on the difference between what I might want and what I actually needed. And at the end of the day, the only thing I needed stepping out was to find paid work in Sydney, which is where my family was. That's the only thing I needed to do. And that was to meet, you know, some financial responsibilities. Beyond that, everything else was open and everything else was a was a choice. So that gave me you know, a lot of agency as I stepped out. And although I had a, a direction I wanted to head in, I also went out with a bit of a willingness to explore and I didn't bind myself up in, I must achieve this by then or this by then. So it was a pretty open approach to what I might develop as a career beyond. Mm. 
So what have you chosen to do since leaving? Right. So, yeah, so I work as an executive coach now, Martin. It took a little time to get to that full-time, which is pretty much what I do now. As I stepped out, I was fortunate to be offered a role with the New South Wales state government quite quickly, and that was a role establishing what became known as Defence New South Wales. So it was a an industry development role, but focused on defence and defence industry. So that was that was great for I think the four years that I did it. I knew enough people in defence, and I knew enough about defence and defence capability to make a real difference. But it was also the sort of job where I was learning every day, and it was great for the diversity of experience. So clearly I was working within the New South Wales state government, which is quite a beast, but also we were working back into the federal government. We were working with defence industry, big and small, domestic and international. We were working with the universities to build up the, the R&D capacity in, in defence and so on. So that was uh, that was really interesting role and a satisfying role for about four years. Through that time, Mm. I was also coaching, mostly back into the Navy Senior Leadership Group. And through that time, I was studying for a a Master's in Coaching Psychology through the University of Sydney. And I think they they both together armed me to the start of 2021, let go the the Defence New South Wales job and just focus on on the executive coaching, which is where I am now. Yep. Mm. With those perspectives, those lenses, and also that underpinning of that, the body of knowledge around sort of coaching mm. and psychology. Yep. What are you seeing as the the major challenges that leaders need to pay attention to in the corporate world then? So one of the reasons I really enjoy the coaching is because I get to help people work through any number and any and a wide variety of challenges. I don't know that there's any in particular that, you know, the contemporary leader needs to focus on today, but perhaps the one area that almost without exception they need to pay attention to, I find, as I'm working with them, is that very foundational piece of, of self-care and self-preservation and you know, putting yourself first so that you're actually in a position to lead others, make the right decisions at the right time, and so on. And clearly, as yeah. leaders, you know, move up in the ranks or up in the hierarchy or take on greater or more extensive responsibilities, the demands of those responsibilities, you know, often start to tax their ability to look after themselves first and foremost. And so very often, you know, when I'm working with leaders to help them develop, perform and succeed, we find ourselves going back to that foundational piece of, you know, how are you looking after yourself physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually? Because if that goes Mm. off kilter, it's not long before, you know, their leadership performance suffers in other ways. Yeah, yeah, good point. Looking back, you know, what are those what are those lessons you've brought from your experience in the service to that corporate world now, the boardroom, the executive coaching you're doing? What are you what are you drawing from that experience? Yeah, I've probably got a couple of things that I point to there, Martin. 
One would be an extension of know your why. And you'll hear a lot of people talking about that, know your why. What is it that gets you out of bed each day? What motivates you? Why are you, you know, sweating over over your your work? I think the very important extension to that is not know your why, but know the why. Understanding how and where what you are doing or the organization that you're working with is relevant and valuable to the world around you. So you know what it means to you. That's great. But as a leader, you've also got to know and be able to articulate why it's important in any wider sense. So knowing the why of of your endeavor is really important. This might sound a little contrary because as a as an executive coach, I I focus very heavily on helping people to leverage their strengths. But I would say that understanding your vulnerabilities is also really key to strong performance because if you don't understand your vulnerabilities, you're not able to preserve and optimise your strengths. And I think that's something I draw directly from my submarine career. So as I've described, you know, they're immensely capable and and lethal, but a submarine is also uh, definitely constrained by the very finite nature of resources that you have on board. Now, again, Martin, on a day like today, that that might open up a bit with nuclear-powered submarines, but you're still going to have, you know, the same number of people on board. They're going to have the same resources, you know, cognitively and emotionally and physically. And if you don't understand what the vulnerabilities are, then you're going to put at risk, you know, the very obvious strengths and capabilities that you have as a leader or as a team. So that's probably the second one is understanding your vulnerabilities. And the third, I actually take from, Martin, I do a little bit of trail running and I I enjoy some trail running ultra marathons. Um, They sort of keep me sober and sane at the very least. And they're a lot of fun. But look, one of the things that I take out of those is how to deal with challenging times. So I'll just offer you a, uh, a mantra, one of my, my favourite ultramarathon mantras, which I know sounds a little perverse. I'll explain it. So the mantra is, <laughs> this, will get, this will get worse before it gets worse. And <laughs> what I take from that, the way I use that is, you know, in a challenging time or moment, If you know that what you're doing is worthwhile and meaningful, then persisting through the difficult times is also worthwhile. If you're in a bit of a pinch point, you know, you know you're in a really bad place, that little mantra, hey, this will get worse before it gets worse, what it enables me to do is become much more accepting of the difficult time that I'm in, but also know that it will change. Now, yeah, it might change and it might change for the worst, but it will change and then it'll change again. So it gives me the ability to persist and endure through those difficult times in the name of a worthwhile pursuit. And it allows me to become comfortable with the discomfort as I do that. So that that would be a couple I'd offer. Know the why, understand your vulnerabilities and... uh, Mm. And this will get worse before it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, I like that. 
okay, I have a sense of how those come together. And when you were talking about it getting worse before it gets worse, I'm imagining actually being able to sort of like zoom out and to look at the trail I've got to run knowing that there are worse sections to come. Right. But actually the goal is worth it. My why, I'm living my why here, so it's it's worth yep. it. Yep, yep. And also, as you talk about that sort of zooming out, yes, you need to be able to do that, but it also allows you to come back to the present and just just be in that present moment as well. So, yes, look yeah. at the whole race, yeah. but you can't eat the whole race in one yeah. go. So just, okay, come back to where you are today or right now and deal with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Peter, um, some exciting stuff happening in your world. You're um, about to launch your book, Running Deep, an Australian Submariner's Life. Exciting. Read a little bit of the uh, the intro to that book. Right. What was the catalyst for behind writing the book? What was what was that energy? Yeah. Look, a couple of things. As a memoir, it does run through you know my naval career, and it particularly focuses on on my submarine career and and the the experiences that I've had there. I would very quickly point out that there is absolutely nothing extraordinary about my submarine career. You know, most of my mates have driven submarines or served in submarines for decades, and and some of them have achieved a lot more than I have. But what I was very conscious of was that for most Australians, it is, you know, absolutely an exotic way of life and in many ways an unknowable way of life. I was conscious that, you know, I'd done a lot of it. I'd probably seen the best and the worst of it. And I was therefore probably in a good position to write something about it. And what I was aiming to do was offer people insight into that genuinely rare way of life. And I think in doing that, also offer them some insight into the value and the nature of the value of our our submarines, you know, what those capabilities offer. Perhaps another way I'd, I'd describe it is I'm, I'm seeking to help people understand what it's like to be an Australian submariner, what it takes to live that sort of life, including being able to meet the sort of standards that we need to meet, and also what it means to us, you know, personally and professionally to, you know, dedicate a life to, to that sort of service. So that's probably the inspiration is to, to offer others some insight. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to read the full book and I'm sure there will be some other conversations we might need to have once I have. You bet. Thinking about sort of, uh, you know, the world right now, people are looking to step up to leadership. Leadership is a, is a valued skill in our world right now. You know, we've dealt with some complex issues, COVID, for example, and the economy and all those things that are going on right now. Um, there's going to be some complex issues for particularly those in defence industry to deal with right now as, and other industries, frankly, as well yep. as we embark on sort of uh, nuclear submarine capability. And that's just that's just one thing. There are many things that are going on in our world. Yep. What's your best advice for that person who's looking to take on more responsibility and, as you say, leaning into leadership every day? Yeah. Look, I'd probably, Martin, go back to that point that I was making earlier about self-care and and self-respect, you know, and putting that at the front of each day. I often have to remind myself that self-care is not selfish. And in fact, it's it's a responsibility of a leader to make sure that their their mental and their physical and spiritual health and well-being 
you know, being cared for because that's what will have them able to make the right decision, able to make courageous and compassionate and wise decisions on behalf of their their people at the time that it counts. And perhaps I emphasise it, Martin, because, uh, you know, it, it took me, you know, we're all evolving, but it took me perhaps longer than it might have to get to a point where I was as as careful and caring of myself as I was, you know, of, of others. One of the things that I think that helps with that is actually, and, and you've talked about is mindset. Mm-hmm. What are the resources that have actually helped you along the way to maintain that mindset, whether they be physical or otherwise? Yeah. So the love and support of my family has been foundational and really important to me over the years. I think also some simple things like, you know, I have never hesitated to seek the support of medical professionals. I'm the sort of bloke who pushes a few limits. So I've busted myself on occasion. You know, I've busted bones, I've had hernias, I've had ulcers, and I've always been pretty quick when the right opportunity presented to get those things dealt with so that I'd be ready to serve again when when needed. More importantly, and perhaps more recently, you know, I've used the resource of professional services like psychologists. So I think there's, I know there's four major occasions through my career, all in the back half of my career, where I've put myself in front of psychologists and and sought their help. And that included, in fact, Mm. as I retired from full-time service, I knew that I had some underlying or overhanging mental health issues that I, I needed to uh, to resolve. So calling out for those professional services is absolutely a resource that I've used in the past. On a similar vein, you know, I've, I have used an executive coach as well. I was using an executive coach during those years when I was in the senior leadership group of, of Navy. And for most of that time, you know, those conversations were very much about how do I optimise my professional performance. But at, at some time, they also switched to, okay, I'm going to depart the Navy. How do I finish well and how do I depart well? Even more recently, Martin, on the book, you know, that was that was a learning adventure pretty much over the last two years. I knew I was stepping into uncharted waters, so I, I found and took on a book coach, which was immensely helpful, mm. particularly in the year or so before I had a publisher signed up. Mm. So, Martin, I think, you know, the way that I think of resilience is it's not something that's, you know, held within you and built up. It's actually an ability to access the right support or the right resource at the yeah. right time for whatever it is that's challenging you on the day yeah. and a willingness to use that support as and when you, you find it and as and when you can tap into it. Yeah. And they're two important parts. Knowing that the resource is there is one thing. Being willing to utilise it is often the, the key. Yeah. You've actually um, gone to a place which actually I'm, which I'm passionate about, which is that mental health, which the term we probably use more broadly is is well-being. Yep. And you talk about self-care. It's, it's actually providing an environment where people have some well-being and they've got the support around that 
And it's also a culture, isn't it, to be able to say it's okay for me to have a chink in my armour that I actually need to sometimes light, shine a light on the shadows of stuff right. that's in the darkness there that actually I need to I need to address it so that I can get on with life, that I can be my best self, whatever it is. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the last thing you want is for that chink in the armour to become apparent at, at the wrong time, you know. Yeah, yeah when the armour is most needed to support you. So, uh, mm. yeah. I'm imagining another podcast here where we get a couple of people just to talk about how we take off the armour and uh, and focus on wellbeing and self-care. So yeah, yeah. I get you to join that. Peter, we could talk for a lot longer about this. Um, there is so much in your book and, and I have actually yet to read it fully. So, But, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I want to wrap up with with our rapid fire questions. So yep. this is where I'd love you to fill in the blank. So uh, a couple of questions. The first question, leadership is blank. Uh, so leadership is values in action. Okay. Next question, what's your go-to book on leadership? Go-to book on leadership is Running Deep in Australian Submarine Life, written <laughs> by Peter Scott, published by Fremantle Press. My, yeah, right. my marketing manager would kill me if I didn't say that. <laughs> Well, I hope it's everybody else's go-to book on leadership. <laughs> you know, that's great. As I said, looking forward to reading it. And uh, next question, I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known self-compassion earlier in my career. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we could all learn for that. Next question, you get a call from a team member. Crisis just erupted in your organisation. What are your first words to that person? How are you doing? Mm. Yeah. There's so much expectation, isn't there, about what the task is and what the issue is, but we actually need to check in with people to make sure they're actually able to go on and deal with whatever's going yeah. on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you don't ask that question, you know, you don't know the impact that the crisis is having on them. And it mm. quite often, you know, it's not a question that they've even asked themselves at that stage because they're still reacting and responding. So I think mm. it can be really powerful. Yeah. And last question, is there a go-to quote on leadership? that's had the most influence on your leadership to date? Yeah, I'm not sure that it's a go-to quote, but I actually quite like my old school motto, which is quantum potes tantum day. so credited to Thomas Aquinas, and translates literally as, as much as you can, dare that much. And I think, you know, in the context of, of your podcast, Martin, I would say it translates to dare to be the best leader that you can be. Mm. Wow. Wow, that's powerful. What a great school motto. Mm. Yeah. Yep. You can apply it to, uh, to anything, so yeah. it's, it's great. Yeah. Peter, it's been great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for giving up your time to share with your insights of leadership and, and more importantly, your new book which I'm sure people can't wait to read. We'll make sure we put some links in the show notes to that book and how people can get a hold of it. So, yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Martin. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it. <laughs>